Warning, the following podcast may contain material that is inappropriate for listeners that are under the age of 18, are easily offended, or get annoyed listening to the rantings of holier-than-thou-know-it-alls that are anything but. Okay, this is part one of the new episode of AWO. Just the part where we answer the emails and stuff. The entire show is actually recorded and mostly edited already, but I don't have time to edit it because I am playing Super Street Fighter 4. Or perhaps it would be more accurate to say losing very badly at Super Street Fighter 4 because everyone has been playing this game for a year and now they know all the focus attacks and dash cancels and links and I do not. So I'm just going to release this with hopefully what is not too distracting a change in editing style. I changed the compressor settings a bit. For you audiophiles out there, if you know about what threshold is, I typically use the compressor at negative 12 and then go through and manually amplify parts that are too quiet. Well, this time I said, let me just jack the threshold all the way up to negative 3. And that way I won't need to manually amplify anything because everything will be pretty loud. The only thing I'm not sure about is maybe it's really, really loud and I can't tell on these headphones or on these speakers. Let me know if it sounds really distorted and bizarre sounding because I have no way to know because I'm tone deaf. Guest appearances on other podcasts. Both Gerald and I, I believe, are on the Anime 82 podcast once again. I know we just did that 12 questions one. This time we are on his Mecha Madness episode in which I am reviewing Mobile Suit Gundam Unicorn and Gerald is reviewing Z-Mind. Now, I know I said I'm reviewing Gundam Unicorn, but somehow I just submitted him a 40-minute tirade about Gundam Universal Century in general. So if that sounds like something you want to hear, the website is anime82.blogspot.com. Man, Regan's got it all figured out. Just get a bunch of people together and do his podcast for him. Why didn't I think of that? Anyway, if you want to join in on this Super Street Fighter 4 festivities, our Xbox Live gamertag is Anime World Order. Here's the show. And it is time for episode 86 of the Anime World Order podcast. My name is Clarissa, and with me, as always, are my co-hosts. I'm Daryl Surratt. And I'm Gerald Rathkolb. And we have yet another hopefully fabulous episode for you today. This episode, we will be reviewing titles that have been selected for us in our listener contest. So I will be talking about a film. Well, actually, it's kind of three short episodes put together into a film by Makoto Shinkai called Five Centimeters Per Second. I'm going to be reviewing a manga by Osamu Tezuka, whom we've talked about quite a bit and as recently as the last episode of this podcast, in fact. This one is released by DMP, which is a first for them. I don't believe they've released any other Osamu Tezuka manga until this one. This is Swallowing the Earth, which is one of his first attempts, if not his 
first at long-form, serialized storytelling. And uh, I'm going to be reviewing possibly the most intimidating anime to review for me. The first work that Gainax ever did as Gainax, the company. And that is the uh, classic movie, The Wings of Noniamis. Or O-Mayonnaise, as, as old... Honey Mayonnaise. <laughs> as the old schoolers call it, I guess. So The Wings of Hanamise, if you only played Samurai Showdown and you couldn't really tell what Ukyo Takjibana was saying. <laughs> when he would do his air projectile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, this movie's going to be about, you know, jumping in the air and cutting an apple in half. No, it's not about that. Yeah, that was a tough one to pronounce for a while. I, I probably butchered it myself on many an occasion. You know you're in trouble when you have to rely on the manga video announcer guy <laughs> to get a proper pronunciation. Yeah. A man who cannot even pronounce his own company's name. Yeah, because yeah. They, in the movie itself, they only mention the name of the place once at all, and it's hard to hear as well. So watching it doesn't yeah. help pronounce it. But yes, it's terrifying to talk about that movie, because that's what I've been leading up to in even being on this podcast at all. This whole episode is AWO hard mode. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, probably worst for Gerald, though. It's probably like if I tried to do Utena. Mm -hmm. We have some feedback from listeners, and I guess I'll go ahead and get started with an email from Anthony Burton. says, love the podcast. Hello, AWO crew. I've been looking for an anime-centric podcast for years, which isn't just an utter slurp fest of the titles they're talking about. Enter AWO. I love the commentary, the jokes, the information, and the raunch of every episode. Now, what is a slurp fest? It sounds pretty raunchy. (laughs) Does that mean something super positive or super negative? I think he means, like, sucking dick. Oh, that's sort of slurp. Is that super positive or super negative? Do you find fellatio to be a negative thing, Gerald? It depends if it bought this van. Me? No. Okay. But if I were performing the fellatio, it would be super negative. Wait, what do you mean? That's not what Max said. Well, Max is a dirty, stinking liar. Don't believe him, people. He loves it. All right. I'm thrilled at how unapologetic everyone seems to be about calling a title so gloriously bad that it has gone to the area of amazing and must watch. I picked up the last year of your show on iTunes to listen to while I work out, drive, or participate in generic degenerate behavior. The only exceptions were I also grabbed episodes number 8 Rate Me Up Scotty and 9 Golgo 13. How could I pass up the AWO crew talking about hentai and I was just about to watch Golgo 13 The Professional so I wanted to see what I was in for. By the way, Laura Dawson really got the shaft in that movie, literally and figuratively. He stole my joke. Oh, hoist by your own petard. Hmm. Uh, That's not my own petard. That's the other petard. I don't remember what a petard means. It's some sort of nautical term. I just meant that you're always stealing other people's stuff. Yeah, so but now I, you know what it I feels like. I steal it and I pretend that it's mine while I say that I stole it. <laughs> Interesting practice, though. I'm right about to watch something, and now let me listen to the review right before I watch something. I'm the other way around. but Yeah. Well, I guess maybe you wanted to see if it was like not worth his time. He says, I just dropped some dough in the donation bit on your site. I'm still not fully caught up to the show, but noticed a post on the site saying your bandwidth fees were enormous. It's not much, but it's the least I can do for the hours of fun you've provided. Quick question, I've been reading the Full Metal Panic novel series, hey, sometimes fluff is fun, and own up to volume three. 
I've scoured Tokyopop's website for information on if or when Novel 4 would be released, but I can't find anything. Any chances one of you knows if this title was put on the back burner or dropped completely? Tokyopop is kind of always in a weird conditions as far as like right. the status of anything that they own. Nobody ever knows. I haven't heard from them in a while. So the problem is, is that Tokyopop a little while ago was having some financial issues, as was pretty much everybody else in the publishing industry at large. But Tokyopop was one of the companies that had fallen prey to licensing a shitload of stuff and a lot of it didn't necessarily sell very well. Eventually that came and bit them in the ass because you know, manga maybe didn't go up as much as they thought or maybe some of those titles didn't sell as well as they expected. I'm pretty sure it's the second one because when you eventually yeah. look at the glut of Tokyo Pop things, a great deal of it was just not manga at all. Right. And my understanding is the OEL stuff has never done particularly well. Yeah, we talked about that in the news segment a while ago that out Outside yeah. of, like, DramaCon and even that, apparently mm-hmm. anything outside of the first volume of that didn't do well either. Right. So what happened was Tokyopop put a lot of titles on hiatus and canceled a lot of things to kind of clear out and ease up their publishing schedule. A lot of their light novels were things that were either put on hiatus with status to be updated at further notice or dropped completely. And nobody's really been sure what was going on for ages. Unfortunately, nobody is still completely sure what's happening. A couple of websites, AAA Anime, which is a distribution company, they're a wholesaler and they sell to various stores around the country. Yeah, basically if you go in the dealer's room of any convention, chances are they all bought their stuff from AAA Anime Distribution, which is why so many of them are selling the exact same stuff for more or less the exact same prices. Right. If you go on AAA Anime and you look at the list of things that are available for order under... You know, filtered by Tokyo Pop, there are a bunch of light novels that have been on hiatus or up in the air that are listed on there. Now, one of them is Full Metal Panic Novel 4 with a street date of February 2011. People have been trying to figure out whether this is a for real street date or whether it's just an estimate. People have been asking Tokyo Pop on Twitter about the status of some of these things. Some of them seem to be slightly confirmed. Some of them are coming back, but Tokyo Pop has been kind of vague on the status for Full Metal Panic. Um, somebody asked them about the chances for Volume 4 and Onward, and all they've really said is, well, there's always a chance. So <laughs> they're not definitely saying no, but they're not really saying yes either. So it's likely that the AAA anime thing is just an estimate, although it seems a little odd because as a wholesaler, if you're going to have stores ordering from you, you'd think they wouldn't list things until they have more solidified dates. Anime companies will do that often, though, when they know something or they're pretty sure something will come out, but they don't know when they'll just put some date really far right. in the future. And, so, and then just keep bumping it back. Which allows them to take pre orders then, and then they can right. just bump it back then, so they don't miss out on the revenue. I wish I could give you a better answer than that, but at least it's something. I imagine that Tokyo Pop must be, like, just barely keeping its head above water. That's yeah. my opinion, because I mean, they've just lost all of the Clamp stuff, they have no access to the Shonen Jump stuff. The last thing they had was, like, the Clamp no Kiseki, and those had some issues, too. Yeah. And... Basically, they're just down to kind of those titles that are not from those things that just happen to 
to do well. Yeah, it's kind of a rough spot. That's why they were trying to push their OEL stuff, and that stuff just didn't work either. Yeah. Right, like when you can't get the things from Shogakukan or Shueisha because they're locked up by Viz, when you can't get things from Kodansha because Delray's got them, mm-hmm. when you can't get the things that Dark Horse has locked up, when you can't get, you know... Just, but you would want that, the stuff that Dark Horse has anyway, because that well, stuff doesn't the, sell. Well, Tokyo Pop probably wouldn't want them, but no. I'm sure that Dark Horse mm. makes enough money from whatever they license by selling it just not to manga people. Well, the problem is, is, is actually it's interesting because Dark Horse has picked up several titles that Tokyo Pop used to have. So have other companies. Do you remember offhand if those were titles that were finished or if those were things that were stopped? I believe they were titles that were finished. Del Rey has, is doing the reprints of Parasite, which was originally a Tokyo Pop yeah. series. Yeah, Kiseju. I remember that. Yeah, ran in Mick Zine right alongside Sailor Moon. Sailor Moon and, and Ice Blade. And that was my yeah. favorite one of that of that group there. And Dark Horse is now reprinting omnibus versions of several of the clamp titles that Tokyo Pop had had. They did the omnibus of Clover. They're doing omnibus editions of Cardcaptor Sakura and I believe Maginite Ray Earth. So... Mm. They can't even, I guess, do reprints. Yeah, of that's that that's stuff. pretty rough because that means then that either the renewal fee was too much for Tokyo Pop to handle, or whatever company Kodansha just didn't want Tokyo Pop to have them. Yeah, so. I mean, it's possible that maybe I don't know how well Parasite sold for them the first time around. That may be one that Tokyo Pop didn't really particularly feel like fighting for. But I would imagine the clamp stuff they wouldn't want to to lose necessarily. Yeah, Parasite was a weird one in that it was, I think probably the best, if not maybe the second best thing that was in that mix zine. And they released a bunch of it and then stopped for years and years and years. And then they mm-hmm. started releasing it again. So if you were a fan of that, you long since forgot about it. And then and that's yeah. the same thing for his question about the Full Metal Panic light novels. Yeah. It's like you can never really tell with Tokyo Pop if something right. is or is not cancelled. It could just be on right. really extended hiatus and then suddenly out of nowhere, there's another one. Like there's only yeah. one thing that I buy from Tokyo Pop, and that's Priest. It's a Korean mm-hmm. comic. It's the only Korean comic that I read. No one has any idea when the next volumes of this come out. It's just one day, suddenly right. there's another volume of this thing. Yeah, well, part of the problem is that not just the Full Metal Panic light novels, which I haven't picked up yet, but I was hoping to, but also the Twelve Kingdoms novels are tied up in this same issue that nobody's really sure if any more of them are going to come out, and that is a really in-depth continuing series so if that never gets finished, that's going to be pretty rough. I hear that while we're over the hump of the worst news of the anime industry, I hear that there is one or two more bits of bad news on the horizon, and I wonder if they have to do with Tokyo Pop. Oh, I'm sure there will be. The economy is still not in great shape, and publishing in general, not even just in the manga industry, but publishing all over the place is hurting pretty badly. Publishers were not equipped to handle the internet happening. Unfortunately, a lot of them really waited too long to try and figure out how to succeed. And, and I mean, if you think about it, if like physical media is suffering pretty badly and publishing is suffering possibly the worst of the physical media and the manga industry is one of the worst sufferers out there, Tokyo Pop then yeah. must be in a really bad state. Those are just random thoughts. Yeah, I'm sure there's some more bad news to come, but yeah, hopefully we are at least over the worst mm-hmm. of it. There's a, a couple more things 
things, finishing up this email. He says, also for Daryl, I just picked up the first few volumes of Crying Freeman from Right Stuff, watched the Hong Kong flick Rikio, and I'm waiting for King of RPGs to be delivered. Amazing great recommendations. What are the chances of anyone releasing the violence hero manga in the US? I'm guessing Slim to none, and as the joke goes, Slim just left town. Yeah, probably. uh, I I haven't heard a single person ever express even interest in releasing Violence Hero Rikio, the manga in America. It is from the late 80s. It has got sort of an old art style to it. Probably Dark Horse would be one of the prime contenders, but I don't know Viz Signature. I think Dark Horse would release maybe three volumes of it and it wouldn't sell and then they'd stop. Who did the Crying Freeman renew release? Was that Dark Horse or Viz? Dark Horse. It was Dark Horse. They did that, but the thing is is that they were able to sell that based on the Lone Wolf and Cub lineage of Kazuo Koike Mm -hmm. that crowd. Plus, I guess there was a prior release of it and so they could kind of tout it as like the perfect collection or, well, not perfect collection, but you know, whatever label they put on it. I should know because I bought all five volumes twice over and in fact lent one out (laughs) to someone right now and he's reading it. Rikio is just one of those things where the time to strike on that was 10 years ago in the late 90s when the movie, the DVD was kind of like hitting it off. Kind of strikes me as like back when Media Blasters used to exist, they'd release all kinds of crazy stuff. Rikio would have been a good fit for that Media Blasters library. How many volumes is Rikio? Pretty long. It's 12 volumes. So if they did like omnibus volumes, it would still be like six volumes or so? It would still be six or, you know, something like that. Four at the absolute smallest, but there's never been a Japanese equipment. Well, I'm not going to say never, but there's probably never been a Japanese uh, equivalent style release for Rikio Mm -hmm. like that. Uh, It's just one of those things where you can't really not sell it without the shrink wrap on it. It's, It's too hilariously unrealistically violent but it's still very violent yeah. such that you know you'd have to put the warning sticker on it and have the shrink wrap and that kind of limits right. your places where you can sell things to usually the only place you can sell it is a comic book store I kind of think the comic book store people would go for something like that because that's the kind of people who would be aware of the live action Hong Kong movie sure that geek kind of crowd I think you could still even today probably make money on Rikio as long as you were smart about it. Obviously, it's never going to do Naruto bleach type numbers, but then nothing else does except Mm -hmm. for those. It's never been done and no one's ever even considered it, but it just strikes me as odd that given the cult status of just that name Rikio, even still, even to this day in 2010, people still know about it. Like the people who are into crazy cult films Mm -hmm. know about that movie. I I just find it weird to think that no one thought they could make money. Maybe people think it's too small of an audience to be worth the licensing costs, because I don't know, was it a really popular title in Japan, because then the Japanese companies might ask a ridiculous amount of money for it. 12 volumes, it must, have been, it be must it. have been popular. It must have been popular enough to run for 12 yeah. volumes, almost concurrently with Dog Soldier, which also ran pretty long. I mean, Tetsuya Sarawatari is a guy who, he's not that popular in America. I mean, the only thing that they really released by him was tough, only about six volumes edited at that, and it didn't really set the world on fire, but I maintain that that was before its time. Maybe now that mixed mm. martial arts is the big thing, that you could sell things like tough 
and then maybe there's more of an audience for it. Yeah. I could be wrong on that. The same thing I think for Grappler Baki came out too soon before people cared about that kind of stuff. I know stuff. that I showed the anime of Tough to our, our mutual friend, Mr. Bugic, and he hated it a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, um, I, I can see why. It's one of those things where it's realistic and it's incredibly not realistic. By the way, for those who don't know, we're, we just mentioned our mutual friend, Mr. Bugic, because he is a uh, MMA instructor. MMA is unique fandom in the sense that a lot of people, the more interested they get into it, they take it up. There are certain mechanics of it that you just can't know until you do it. And so a lot of people who are big enough fans, they start going to the gym. You can't really say that for like baseball or, you know, basketball or things like that. Short of like, oh, I'm going to go out in the back and, you know, shoot some hoops. This is like, I'm going to go train and then I'm going to go fight as an amateur. <laughs> that's, the, that's the level of that fandom. That's where they are for that. But never, ever heard of anyone really seriously considering Violence Hero Riccio. But at least in the meantime, uh, it has been fully scanlated into English by fan translation groups. You can at least read it if you want it. It's out there if you know about it. You just can't go out and buy the thing in a store. Right. Maybe that's for the betterment of this generation that you know, they aren't you know, accidentally stumbling upon Riccio, but you know, who knows. Uh, we got another email here. This one is from Taiji Inoue, who I believe was a runner-up for the Fabulous mm-hmm. Prize. The Fabulous Prize has really broke the bank as far as shipping the damn thing. I still have to ship the international ones. God, we need to plan this better next time. We should have come up with slightly less Fabulous Prizes. The subject of this one is two questions. Question number one. While watching Gunbuster, I noticed that several brands are depicted in the show, like JVC, Pepsi, Japan Airlines, which is now bankrupt, etc., There is even a Van Halen poster in Noriko's room. Thinking about some 80s shows, I could remember several scenes where there was little concern of copyright infringement. Do you guys have any idea when studios started avoiding or slightly altering famous brands in anime? Is there a specific case that can be pinpointed as the first, or maybe lawsuit threats were issued? I'm going to say, as my answer to this, that they didn't really care about copyright infringement until things started to actually get sold outside of Japan. I think once licensing things internationally sort of appeared on their radar, then they started to realize, hey, wait a minute, we can get in trouble for this. I wonder if it has anything to do with the, the Olymp- Olympics. I was thinking the Olympics and Lupin, because I know that that episode yeah. was done in the 70s, but it, and when it was trying to be released over here a long, long time ago, they had trouble with that, like big trouble with that. Yeah, that was, uh, when, you, when we say it was trying to be released over here, we don't mean the Genion Pioneer release, we mean like the first further back streamlined Tales yeah, yeah. of the Wolf era, even though they, they more or less just stuck to the Hayao Miyazaki-directed episodes of Loop on the Third, both of them. That was kind of where they first sort of started to hear, like, oh, you can't use the Olympics logo. You have to change it. TMS, I've always stated whenever we talk about anything released by TMS, in the previous email, I talked about Gogo 13. That was a TMS uh, movie. And I say, in all their times they do U.S. releases, they like to screw around with the source material. They like to edit things out. They like to blur things out. Lupin and Golgo 13 are very susceptible to this because they used real world things that was part of their appeal mm-hmm. when they first came out like this is set in the real world you've got real cars and real booze and real guns that we did not pay real money to use the likenesses <laughs> of and so for example when Pioneer or Genion released Secret of Mamo that print is edited all the brand names are obscured you know mosaic out or you know digital blurred that sort of thing and I, I really think it was just one 
once the U.S. market opened up, as far as, I mean, international markets opened up, really, I can't really pinpoint a specific title. I mean, there are instances earlier than that where they actually deliberately skirted around copyright. Like you mentioned, Japan Airlines as a brand that got depicted in things, even as early as Area 88, that was Yamato Airlines. It wasn't Japan Airlines. I mean, Yamato is another word for Japan. Mm-hmm. That might have just been to be faithful to Kaoru Shintani's manga where it was Yamato Airlines all along. Mm. But that's the kind of thing because even, um, you know, Megazone 2, 3, Part 1, real brands are all over the place. In actually, that. Part 1 is interesting because the brands, they were actually in the dub of it as well. In the old Streamline dub, the one guy was actually talking about Beamers and what BMWs are and such. And even back then, they I guess they got away with it with Streamline. It seems to me that they used to be a little more careful with domestic products, maybe because there was more of an immediate threat of legal action. Although I understand that Japan's laws aren't as strict about that as, as ours are. As they were explained to us, it seems like they're just different in that you don't have an obligation to protect your copyright right, and you still maintain it. I guess that's what it. I mean by not as strict. Mm-hmm. You don't have to sue somebody if you see them encroaching yeah. things. Well, Whereas in, in America... You lose your copyright if you don't protect it. I think it's only trademarks, isn't it? It works that way? It might be trademarks. I don't think it's copyright. If you do not take legal action against somebody infringing on it, then you actually lose it. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, I'm not a lawyer. None of us here are, so I don't really want to definitively say, yes, this is the reason why. But certainly the era of the one-frame Budweiser can missile in anime is pretty much done and over with. I can't think of a lawsuit that got sent out and they were like, okay, no more. It just sort of gradually happened. Well, they don't need to worry about it now because they all have legitimate advertising deals worked out with Pizza Hut and Doritos and everything. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to mention... Right, Pizza Hut and Doritos and Code Geass and, and Evangelion. Mite had yeah. a Pizza Hut deal as well, which seems very a strange sort of product. Marimite girls on your Pizza Hut box. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, here he's got a second question. Looking at my music folders, I noticed a shift from theme songs to J-pop slash J-rock as openings and endings during the 80s. Are there specific cases that preclude this shift? I remember reading that the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack sold impressive numbers, and it slightly changed the way studios treated music in movies. And I'm actually going to correct you on that, and it's probably American Graffiti that really did it. But anyway, I was wondering if shows like the original Bubblegum Crisis or Macross could have caused a similar kind of impact in the industry, or maybe extremely popular shows like Ursa Yatsura displayed the importance of the profit from soundtrack sales during the time before MP3s. Could there also be an interest in recording studios during the 80s and promoting specific artists and using anime as the medium? You're pretty much on the mark, as far as I know. I usually point to Ursa Yatsura as the show that really kicked off the value of investing a lot of money in music in anime. I mean, if you get the complete box set of Ursa Yatsura, you're talking like 18 discs or something like that, as far as having a huge amount of opening theme songs, ending credits theme songs, insert songs, which say songs played mm-hmm. during the show, and by songs I mean like vocalized, composed things. Ursa Yatsura was a big hit. And there was so... another duo, they, they were actually at uh, Otakon like two or three years ago. Kenji Kodama and the producer, 
Michihiko Suwa, and they've done shows like City Hunter and some other recent shows. I'm blanking on the names, but Case Closed. They did Case Closed and all of that. And they emphasized a lot the music in the shows because they sold a lot of soundtracks to that, and that was a big deal. They were saying that they were like the first ones to fade the music out as the show ended, which then added to sales every time. And they would play like a song every single episode as well. Hmm. But yeah, I really think that, yeah, it did start in the 80s, certainly. Uh, what he's saying, the shift from theme songs, he means things like, obviously, they're all theme songs, but he means like songs composed specifically for the show, like all those super robot shows of the 70s where they straight up say the robot's right. name in the song. It's a song composed specifically for this show. Mm-hmm. You know, Ursa Yatsura, those songs were composed specifically for Ursa Yatsura. And even throughout the 80s, like once Mio hit it big, Dunbine, obviously, those songs were ma- made for Dunbine. The various, you know, Dragon R, all these things commissioned for the show. I mean, eventually, though, it, they started to say, like, okay, we've got these idols that we want to promote, and then, you know, a way to promote idols is to have them do a part in an anime or something like that. Eventually, what he's saying, the current modern situation, it is very rare to have a song composed specifically for an anime. Jam Project is kind of like the specialty group for that. Mm. Kind of no one else really habitually does so, unless it's Jam Project. It's almost exclusively just giant robot shows now. It's yeah. Yeah, outside of that, yeah. It. Because of the 70s phenomenon, like I said, where you've got to have some sort of song where you say the name of the robot, or there's a, a fan base like the Steve Harrisons of the world mm-hmm. who's like, it's not a robot show unless you got a song where it says the name of the robot. I got in some heat with, you know, the internet because I said it's not a mecha show if the title of the show doesn't mention the robot. That's another topic. Normally, though, nowadays they've got like an idea. It's like, okay, we want to promote this band or we want to promote this song or, or this single, and we are going to have uh, anime tied in with that. Mm-hmm. TM Revolution's another guy who will write songs yeah. specifically for a show and come to mention it. Because mm. I was going to say Soul Eater, and I was like, wait a second, no. Soul Eater, he wrote that song specifically for Soul Eater. But the record labels and anime, they've got sort of a, a relationship as a result of those shows of the 80s in which, you know, they really made that investment in music. I don't know, like again, if there was really like a one show where they were like, okay, from now on there will be no more songs created specifically for this show or just going to use like a licensed tie-in song. I wonder if shows that have got idols like Macross and Full Moon of Sagashite, if those are kind of the few exceptions outside of like the giant robot shows, because those shows usually are have a lot of music composed for them. Yeah. Usually right. because then they can cross-promote with concerts and such, I guess. But didn't Full yeah, Moon I mean- of Sagashite just have the one same song that she sang 50 50- million times they changed the song yeah, like twice in the show oh okay. that was my memory of macross 7 it was like the two or three songs they just sang a billion times but i guess i was wrong about that well what's weird is that i know they had the other songs on the soundtracks but i don't know if they actually used them in the show the yuki kaijura effect where there's like three soundtrack cds for noir but there's just two pieces of music <laughs> or three pieces of music yeah. used as the bgm for the whole it's like, thing why it's didn't like, you just use all this other music that existed in the actual show you got me but yeah i really think the real idol j-rock j-pop band shift really hit its stride in i i'm gonna say the mid 90s i'm gonna say roughly around 94 is really where it started to seem like didn't you know sailor moon do a lot in music didn't they have concerts and stuff for that big deals like sailor moon and well they they had the musicals definitely sakura tyson was enormous as well I'm, i'm trying to think of if if there's like shows from around then that kind of 
caused the shift. Maybe like the general anime song concert scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I'm just thinking of like things like Escaflone, things like Soccer Taisen, things where they sort of use their fame in the cartoon to sort of launch the idol career, and then from there the record people said, okay, maybe we can reverse engineer this and get like idol singers' careers to take off through the anime connection. You know, then it just went from there. I want to say that's kind of how it happened. I don't really know if there's like a boom one show magic bullet. Yeah, and I I don't remember when it came out, but they also the anime for Kaiken Phrase, they like formed a band of like real people that did all the music that was, you know, what the band in the show made. And so they had, you know, they actually do that like an enormous amount, but oftentimes it's rare that that lasts far beyond the show itself. Like Cardcaptor Sakura, they formed some group with the name Gumi in it. I forgot the name of it. Three actresses. And I think think it's just Gumi. Is it just Gumi? Oh, okay. Well, that makes it easy. And um, yeah, they did like the first ending. mm -hmm. Yeah, I know what you're talking about, Gerald. I remember when the original Oh My Goddess OAVs came Mm -hmm. out, uh, the three voice actresses, they had Goddess Family Club and they did songs Mm -hmm. for that. Once again, uh, we have no answers (laughs) for the real question. We just spoke uh, for like half an hour on nothing. Yeah, it's been like 35 minutes. 30 minutes. (laughs) And the answers to all the questions are we don't know. But let's just talk like we know. If only we were PhD students, then we would be on the fast track to academic tenure. But we are not. Yeah. Uh, nobody gets tenure anymore. All they do is hire adjunct and assistant professors and then pay them shit wages. As opposed to working outside in the real world where they hire you and pay you shit wages anyway. I have an email here that doesn't actually ask a question, so we can get through this quite easily. This is from Jeff Wong, and he says, Most to Gerald, but hello, Clarissa and Daryl as well. Ran into Jan when she was still Scott back in 1985 in Denver. This is regarding Jan Scott Frazier and Gerald's review of Bobby's Girl, which we did in the last episode. Yes. We Denver CFO crowd all got anime from just one source. This girl, Barbara, from Wyoming, who got them from her pen pals in Japan. All 18th generation, of course. I got sick of that one day and hopped a flight to Japan. I was in the USAF. Did it a few times since. For two weeks, I rented anime and copied them onto, yes, Beta. Along the hall, I brought back Bobby's Girl, which we translated as devoted to Bobby back then. I think we all watched it in Scott's basement, or Donji's, on a snowy night, and everyone fell asleep except Scott and myself. I haven't spoken to Jan in many years, and I doubt she wants to talk to any of us from back then in the Denver days, but I'll always remember watching that OAV, and the Kentucky Fried movie, and tons of other weird shit in Jan's basement. All the time. You guys haven't seen the Kentucky Fried movie yet, have you? I remember you said you saw Amazon Women on the Moon, but not the Kentucky Fried movie. I have seen that. Okay, good. Yeah, the whitest black guy in the world and stuff, that was... No, that's not the Kentucky Fried movie. The Kentucky Fried movie is the one with the really extended Enter the Dragon parody, Catholic High School Girls in Trouble, which I'm sure you'd remember. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure I've seen that. I don't know where that other bit was from, but... Uh, Rex Kramer, The weird, like, seeker. news segments and stuff. Yeah, the popcorn you read eating has been pissed, pissed in, in film at 11. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, but that was carried over into Amazon Women on the Moon as well. It's like, I just blew up my asshole film right right anyway he goes on all the time wondering if radio shack would ever call the cops on jan for stealing the mountain of video cables and devices stashed inside her closet or if one of her gun running redneck buds were going to smash through the door packing fire just thought i'd pass on some old tales but here are a couple of anime from the 80s that you guys might like if you're interested in bobby's girl Legend of Body Body, or Body Body Densetsu. It's a two-part OAV based on the manga of the same name by Shigeno Shuichi, who went on with Initial D. Oh, dear. Body Body was big, too, ending with 38 volumes. 
In contrast to Bobby, the character design is simple, think initial D, and the art style is average, not glossy. However, the direction and music are excellent. Drama-wise, it's sports manga anime with lots of exciting scenes in opposition to the melancholy that's Bobby's girl. However, they both share the similar themes and, of course, motorcycles. Part 2 lost out to Area 88 Part 3 as the best OAV in Animage that year. I think it was 1988 or 89. But in my humble opinion, it was better. I think I still have that issue really? of Animage. It was better than Area 88 Part 3? Well, now that's like, now you gotta go see it, because it's like, really? It's uh, better <laughs> than one of the really good OAVs of I, I also have to wonder because it was by you know the artist of Initial D. He says character designs were it's simple. A bold claims yeah. what we're trying yeah, to say. Very, character designs are simple. Think Initial D. I don't think simple when I think Initial D. I think ugly. And then he goes on with the other one is Crying Dragon, an OAV adaptation of a manga about Mahjong, Yakuza, and Zen-like demeanor. Are there any manga about Mahjong that are not about the Yakuza? I've not encountered one. Hmm. Saki should be about the Yakuza, but it's not really about Mahjong. Yeah, it's, it's about bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think it's that much worse than most other exaggerated sports or gambling or whatever series. People have like crazy, ridiculous powers and do strange things and the rules kind of don't really matter that much, but that's kind of the same for all of them. It needs more Jinichiro Koizumi. That is true. <laughs> he says, uh, Crying Dragon was also one of Jan's favorites and mine because it uses so little animation to achieve the greatest effect. Flashy stuff. Some of the techniques can be found later in Akira and Wicked City and eventually became the norm. Unfortunately, I can't find my copy on beta anymore. And that's his email. I have heard of the first one, Buddy Buddy Densetsu, but I have never heard of Crying Dragon. That's kind of a new one to me. For reference, the Denver Anime Club during the CFO days was kind of a pretty active one. Bunch of notable fans came from there. If you're mildly interested in this, I mean, I wasn't from Denver, but... Um, was Jan Scott on it was also... um a Joe Vecchio, whom mm-hmm. we had as a guest years ago. Wasn't Steve Barrett? Steve... Steve... What's his name? Bennett? Wasn't he from that as well? Stevie B? I don't know. That doesn't sound right. When I think of Stevie B, I think of Virginia. Hmm. But I could be wrong. I'm not a Stevie B biographer. Yeah, I'm not certain, but I remember that there were a couple of people that came from that Denver CFO. All right. As always, if you yourself would like to provide some feedback on particular episodes or the show in general, or you have any questions, you can reach us in a few different ways. You can email us at animeworldorder at gmail.com or comment on our website, www.animeworldorder.com. You can also call us and leave us a voicemail message at 206-666-4AWO. That's 206-666-4296. So I guess we should get on with this stuff now. As it were. <laughs>